if you have 10 companies, five of them fail, and they're like your children, right? Because you invest in them, you nurture them, and then you grow them, and then they become friends. And when they die, it's because you've lost faith in them because you stopped funding them. If you keep funding them, they never die. So at some point, you have to bite the bullet and say, enough is enough. I no longer believe in you. And that's very sad because if you're a father or a parent, you have five children, you would spend the most time on the weakest. But as a venture capitalist, you have to spend time with the strongest because when you lose, the maximum you can lose is one X. The maximum you can gain is unlimited. You can make a thousand X. So clearly it's pushing the winners. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 30 of the So This Is My Why podcast and the very first episode to be released in 2021. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Dr. Finian Tan, a Singaporean deep tech venture capitalist and chairman of Vickers Venture Partners, ranked the fifth most consistently performing fund manager worldwide. But even prior to Vickers, Pinion has done a lot, including being a shell trader, the founding partner of Jron, the APAC trading arm of Goldman Sachs before becoming the deputy secretary of Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry, where he was tasked with creating the Silicon Valley of the East in Singapore, a tenure that led to him being appointed, amongst others, the chairman of the $1 billion TIF fund. He was also the executive deputy chairman of ASTAR. Thereafter, he became the founding partner of Draper Fisher Driversen E Planet, a Silicon Valley VC most known then for investing in Skype and Hotmail. And it was there that he made his first and most well known investment in a little known startup called Baidu. We talked about all that, as well as what it was like building his own VC, their unique investment approach, why they pivoted into the deep tech space and some of the most exciting portfolio companies that Vickers has, including a company that may very well have unlocked the key to reversing aging. This is a long episode, but I promise that it's an exciting one. So if you've ever been curious about what it's like to be in the VC world, or just want to know a little bit about the companies that are doing pretty groundbreaking work right now, then this is the episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I thought we would start with something that people might notice immediately, which is that you have quite an unusual name, Finian. And I mm. read that you were actually named because you were born on the day of the Finian of Clonet Star Day. And is yeah. it fair to say that faith was an important part of your life growing up? Well, I wasn't the one who chose my name. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in a Catholic family. I was quite involved with the church when I was a young boy. I went to a Catholic school, attended church every weekend. I served as an altar boy. And then later, I joined the choir. And later in my life, I became the choir master of two churches. But over the last few decades, I've become a free thinker. So I would call myself an agnostic, but a cultural Catholic. Because religion is quite encompassing. It's not just about the faith. It's not just about what you believe. It's about all the days that they celebrate, all the events and Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, all those things. So I do celebrate these events still. So I would call myself a cultural Catholic. 
but then agnostic in terms of belief. And what was it like growing up in Singapore in the 1960s? Were there key moments for you? Mm, wow, that's going back quite far back. I grew up by the sea. When I was about eight, my father decided to move from Serangoon Gardens to Pongo, which is in the northeast, just by the sea. He bought a bungalow, but it wasn't ready. So the priest actually had a small little attap house just by the sea that was empty. Wooden house, zinc roof with attap over it, and he allowed us to live there for a while. So we lived there for about a year and a half, and I have very, very fond memories. Go by the beach every day, every evening, take off our shoes, play in the sea. We had ropes tied to the tree, we would swing into the sea and do all sorts of stuff. And then when the house was ready, we moved in. And my dad bought us a motorized sampan initially. Then later, he bought a speedboat. And so that's what we did every weekend with our friends. We went crabbing, we went spearfishing, snorkeling. We put fish cages in between the rocks. And then the next week, we would go and collect the fishes. And we would cook them there. Had a lot of fun. I understand you were a school swimmer. So did that kind of lifestyle transition you into wanting to swim in school? Yes, I never really took lessons, but I grew up just in the water. So when they asked in my class if anybody could swim, and I put up my hand, there weren't many swimmers, so we represented the school. Weren't that good. We won a few prizes here and there, but you know we were never in competition for national swimming meets or etc. Like anything like that. And how would your parents have described you then as a child? I don't know. They didn't see as much because we were always out at sea, water skiing or sailing and windsurfing. And we didn't study very hard. We were kind of exam kids. Maybe a couple of weeks before the exam, we would buck up. So the only time when I dedicated my efforts was in the GCO level. That's when I spent more than a few weeks to prepare. So how did you end up choosing engineering? Because I noticed you studied engineering at Singapore Polytech and you continued at university, master's and PhD. So was it something you knew Mm. you wanted to do? No, actually not. It was chosen for me. As a kid, right, most parents would tell you to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And that was kind of my goal too. But I didn't do very well in Mandarin, mainly because I'm Peranakan. So we speak Peranakan at home, which is a form of Malay. It's a very simplified form of Malay. So Chinese was very alien to us. And my brother and sister both studied Malay in school and did very well. I was the first one to take Chinese. I wasn't very interested in it and didn't do well. And so in Singapore at that time, during my year, it was the first time that you had to pass your Chinese in order to get into A-levels. So to go to college, you would need to pass your Chinese. And I had never passed my Chinese, and I didn't really care about it, but suddenly I had to, and that was very tough. So I ended up going to the polytechnic. I did well. I had a lot of A1s, but they were all in science and math and English. So I decided to go to the poly. And at that time, the poly didn't have, like today, you have law, you have all sorts of different things, accounting. At that time, it was just engineering. That's it. Polytechnic was technical. So what choice did I have? It was either mechanical or production or electronics or electrical or civil. So any many more, and I chose one. <laughs> I didn't know what engineering was about. I didn't really like working in the hot sun with a hard hat. So it wasn't really the career that I wanted. It was more a stepping stone. So I thought, okay, maybe I would do my degree after. 
and then maybe be a lawyer because you can switch after you get the first degree you can do a diploma at law go to the inns of court or something in the uk so i thought maybe that's what i'll do so i went to the poly i did reasonably well got a place in singapore and also got places in the uk but i had more exemption so in the uk i had two years exemption in singapore one year so i was impatient and so I decided to go to the University of Glasgow. So I went straight to the third year in a four-year course, two, two years to graduate. And I think when you were there, your father went bankrupt. And that was quite a momentous occasion in your family life, right? He actually wasn't made a bankrupt. His company went bankrupt. But the effect was almost the same because he was a partner in a partnership. So there's unlimited liability. So it didn't matter. It's joint and several. Right? So they seized our house. They took all our cars. So in the end, my parents moved to an HDB flat. And that was the first time that they had lived in an HDB. But I was already overseas. And I had a scholarship for my fourth year because I did very well for my third year. And so when I came back on holiday, you know, I saw the HDB flat and lived there for a while. And then I went back and I got a scholarship to go to Cambridge. I did my master's, my PhD. I taught for a while. And then I came back after that. But by then, I had a job until I bought an apartment and then later a house. Do you feel that that moment changed you? Because I read that you were determined to win all of the awards in your third and fourth year and you planned it like a war. It didn't have anything to do with my dad's situation. In my third year, when I first went to Glasgow, I didn't have anything to do or I didn't know anyone. So I got to know a few Singaporeans. And uh, on the first day of school, I came back, put my bags aside like I always do, and went around knocking at doors to see who's going to play with me. But everybody was doing some work. So I had nothing to do. So I decided to just maybe go through my stuff and prepare for tomorrow. And I started doing that daily. And when the exams came, I, I really did well. You know, I excelled. There were, I think, two or three prizes on offer. And after the final exams, I won all three. I didn't aim to win all three, but I happened to have won all three. And so I said, wow, this is interesting. So then I looked at the fourth year and there were like seven prizes or something like that for many, many subjects. So I said, how cool would it be if I won all, right? Because I already have a perfect score. So I said, mm, maybe I should try for that. So I planned for it. And yeah, I, you know, I took it like a war. Because if you want to win all the prizes, you can leave nothing to chance, right? So I needed to make sure I was at least 10 marks ahead of number two. But that's very, very tough. You must be super good. So I planned how I was going to do it. And this may be interesting to you. I realized that when you are at an exam, your mind is not the sharpest. And sometimes you have some memory lapses. I couldn't afford that. So I said to myself, how can I remember all the essay answers perfectly, leaving nothing out? Because I have to be perfect, right? So I said, well, actually, I remember a lot of songs by heart, and I never forget them, even in an exam, right? So I said, how can I remember it like a song? How can I remember a particular answer like a song? The only way is to practice and to do it daily or often. So I wrote all the perfect answers in point form. Because you can fill in the English language. You just need the points to make sure that you don't miss anything. So every morning, after I prepared all, I would memorize them. And then every day, I would write the answers. Every day. For many, many months. So by the time the exam came, I knew this point is like the back of my hand, like a song. So I would then spare a lot of time to do the analytical part. So now, I'm sometimes callous. And sometimes you make a mistake and you don't know you made a mistake and you get an answer. And you feel good about it. How do you know the answer is right? So I knew I had a lot of time to spare. 
So why do I finish in half the time and then go home? I have to use the time well. So I decided to find ways to check my answers by either back calculating from the answer to the question. Sometimes you can do that and sometimes you can't. And if you can't, I figured out ways to arrive at the answer through another mean. So completely different way. And if I arrive at the same answer, then I know I'm correct. So I can check my numerical answers too. So that's what I did. And I was so nervous because I was so prepared. And on the first day of the first exam, I looked at the paper and I knew everything by heart. I could finish it in like one third the time. I got so excited and I started to shiver and I couldn't keep my hand straight. I couldn't write. So I said, oh, calm down, calm down. I held my hand and then they were okay. I started and I finished it in like one and a half hours. And in two hours, I checked all my answers and I knew I would be like, 100 or 98 or something close. And then I had nothing to do because I was so quick. I still stayed till the end. I just checked and checked and checked and <laughs> I never left because I didn't want to waste any spare time. So I felt very good after the exams. And then I came home because I had to finish my national service. So I came home and when the results came out, uh, a friend of mine wrote to me and said, we went to check the board. There's only one name. So I did it. I was very, very happy because I worked for like a year for that. And so on the back of that, I think you got scholarship offers from Oxford, Cambridge and MIT. Yeah. I mean, I had perfect scores, right? So I could go anywhere. Cambridge was really special because both Oxford and Cambridge, when you go there, it's like going back in time. It's like Harry Potter, right? Everybody wears a gown. Everybody's on bicycles. We eat in the hall. And then there's a high table. There's somebody who speaks in Latin. And you toast to the master and the queen. And it was really nice. So when I went there for my interview, I fell in love with the place. More than when I went to Oxford. Because Cambridge is um, a little more liberal. And I'm a liberal. Oxford is a little more conservative. And Cambridge is also a little more scientific and uh, Oxford a bit more liberal arts, like history and PPE, etc. So I think uh, Cambridge suited me better. And Cambridge is a town that's dedicated to the university, whereas Oxford is a city. So I like that about Cambridge. And I also like the professors who interviewed me. So I decided to study at Cambridge. But I needed scholarships. So my college gave me a scholarship. And then I won the Shell Cambridge Scholarship, which I didn't expect. So I was very happy with that. It could fund everything that I needed. There was a vibrant Malaysian and Singaporean society. It's called KUMSA, Cambridge University, Malaysia and Singapore Society. In the past, it was just a Malayan society. And then when Singapore and Malaysia split, it became KUMSA. I was very active. I ran for president, got elected. So I became the 45th president or something of KUMSA. KUMSA was started by Lee Kuan Yew. And I think he was the first president. The second one was Yong Peng Hao, the ex-chief justice. And I think many of the cabinet ministers were also uh, active in Kumsa, like people like George Yu and Lim Hung Kiao and people like that, I believe. So it was fun. We would get all our local food when we go to Kumsa events, rendang and mirabus and all these things. So after all those years spent in that collegiate environment, what was it like transitioning out and working at Shell? Well, I was always looking forward to working in a big multinational corporation. That was my dream. So Shell, I guess, is as multinational as you can get. It's Royal Dutch, so it's British and Dutch. I enjoy working for Shell very much. It taught me a lot of skills that I still use today. I started in the supply and trading, and then eventually I was posted to Japan, became a trader. And so Shell also taught me Japanese. 
and I became fluent in Japanese because I worked for Shell Japan for a few years. I lost some vocabulary because I don't practice as much. But every time I go to Japan after a few weeks, I'm comfortable again. So I'm very happy that I learned another language, especially since my Mandarin is so weak. And how did you end up in Goldman Sachs? I think you were poached, were you? Yes, I was a very active and gutsy trader. Well, maybe gutsy is not the right word. I was a planner and I would plan big plays, kind of cornering the market. And I put on a few plays and on one of them, the counterparty that lost the most was actually Goldman. So in the end, they decided to hire me. So they offered me a very good position. So I joined them in Singapore. Then I was posted to London and traveled to New York a lot. And then I came back to head the office of J. Aaron. J. Aaron runs trading for Goldman. It's not just called Goldman, but at the time it was still called J. Aaron. Goldman acquired them in 1982 and kept the name until the 2000 something. Goldman was a big, big change because Goldman is an American firm. And it was the first time I was exposed to American because I went to Cambridge, I went to Glasgow, I worked for Royal Dutch Shell, and then suddenly I joined an American firm. And it's very, very different. The hierarchy is very flat and it's all a question of how good you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been there. And you need to be gutsy to speak up and just speak your mind and may the best man win. So very different. Culture was totally different. And People were very relaxed. Dressing was relaxed. You can put your feet on the table when you're talking to somebody else. Whereas in Shell, that, that never happened. Very prim and proper. I adapted and quickly became the head of the office in Singapore. And then somebody asked me to join the government. And, and that really was a big crossroad in my life. How did they hear about you? Because you were based in New York for a time, right? Before you asked to go back to Singapore. Well, you know, in Cambridge, most of them are scholars and all the scholarships come from the government. So I knew a lot of people in government. So they made me an offer to be Deputy Secretary of the Ministry of Trade and Industry. I was a young man of 34 and I knew that they stretched as far as they could to get me in. So even though they couldn't pay me what I used to earn. It didn't matter. What mattered to me was that they tried their best. So they really stretched. And they gave me a very coveted position. MTI is the place that runs the economy. So it was perfect for me. I read that they had never offered such a senior position to someone from private practice. Yeah, at that time, no. And since then, no too. What were the main considerations for you to decide to make that jump? Because as you say, you had to take a pay cut and it's reported that your income then was less than what you were paying tax at Goldman. The reason was, as a trader, you only know what you trade. And uh, there's not very many, a few commodities, right? And that's it. So whenever I would have lunch or dinners with my friends from the government, I found them very learned. They had opinions about everything in the world. And I didn't. I just knew about my stuff. And every time I had an opinion about, say, the education system or something, they would explain everything from a macro perspective, from a balanced perspective. To give you an example, let's say, you know, I suggested reducing the class size. They say, okay, to how much? I said, maybe 15 people per class. At that time, it was 44. So that's like more than two times, right? So you have to increase the Ministry of Education's budget by two or three X. Where's the money going to come from? Do you take it from defense? Do you take it from the environment? Do you take it from the Ministry of National Development? Or do you tax more? Wow. I would never think of an answer like that, right? Yeah, I'm only looking at it parochially from the bottom up, but his answer was from the top down. So I wish to be as smart as them. So when the offer came, I thought, hmm, maybe this is my opportunity to broaden my thinking and see things from the top down rather than from the bottom up. So that's the main reason, I think. Have you heard of the four L's? To live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. 
So my interpretation of that is to live our matters of the material senses, so material things, and then to learn involves the brain or the mind, to love matters of the heart and to leave a legacy matters of the soul, or I guess what you leave behind, right? So the job in Goldman didn't fulfill all four L's. I was materially very, very satisfied, but I wasn't learning as much. I was contributing a lot because I was good at what I did. Did I love my job? When I'm up, I, I loved it. When I was down, I didn't like it. So it was kind of a roller coaster ride. And was I leaving anything behind? Not quite. As a trader, you're an intermediary, right? You don't really create anything. So it wasn't complete from a 4L perspective. The government was more. You leave a legacy. What you do has an impact on everyone. If you do it well, you can make people's life much better. So leaving a legacy is good. And you're learning every day and you are moving from ministry to ministry because at the end it's an open ministry. So you're learning a lot and you're enjoying what you do because you're contributing. Materially, it was okay because Singapore pays pretty well, but I had to give up quite a bit there. But there's just so much you can get in each L. So let's say you earn 3 million, you fulfill materially. If you earn 10 million, it doesn't change it very much. You know, that L is already fulfilled. So it's more the other things that you should look at. So I felt that this would be more fulfilling. And if I didn't like it, I can always go back. So I didn't really have very much to lose, just time. So I, I took the plunge. It changed my life mainly because I was asked to help make Singapore into a Silicon Valley for Asia. And that got me into venture capital, into startups. And finally, I could use one part of my brain that I didn't use, which is my PhD in engineering. Because as a trader, I was just using my numerate skills. But now I could use my financial skills plus my tech skills. So that was very helpful because of venture capital is really a mix of finance and tech. So it was perfect for me. And I saw my calling. So after one term, I joined the Draper Fisher Jefferson Deep Planet Ventures. And they were well-known today. Draper is well-known today for Tesla, SpaceX, and SolarCity, and all of Elon Musk's company. But at that time, they were known for Hotmail. And so I joined them as the founding partner for Asia. And lucky enough, my first investment was a small company at the time called Baidu. So we took a very big stake in the company. We began with 25% and gradually inched that up to 28% at the IPO. And I think it still holds the record for the best performing IPO in NASDAQ's history. Before we jump into that, I wanted to go back to what you were doing at the ministry because you came up with mm. three recommendations. And I, I would love to know the thought process behind how you came up with those three recommendations because I felt that they were very big and very audacious. Like one of it was the TIF fund of one billion. That's a huge sum. And like creating this tech hub at Bonavista. Like how did you, from being a shell trader and having that sort of narrow view of the world, go to creating this big vision? By the time I made those recommendations, I had already been in government for a few years. And I had already been studying how to make Singapore into a knowledge-based economy. So I had already been studying the Silicon Valley, studying Israel, studying Ireland, studying all sorts of different models. And I had already traveled the world before we made those recommendations. And it wasn't made just by me. I had a whole team of people. And Dr. Tony Tan, the then Deputy Prime Minister, who later became President, was also very instrumental. There was Tio Ming Kian, who was the permanent secretary, who was seconded to the NSTV at the time, A-Star's predecessor. And I think between the three of us, we came up with these three recommendations, which were approved, and I was made the chairman of all three. Were you not inclined to stay on to see it all through? I was there for three and a half years, and you can do so much 
as somebody in government, you're not a player. You're a referee, a trainer, an umpire, but you're not a player. And with the internet booming like that, I was itchy. I wanted to play. That's the only way I could do it, to actually go in by myself. Because the internet revolution at that time was the biggest revolution that I had ever seen in my life. The biggest change. Everything else was incremental, but the internet would change everything. So I decided to go in headfirst. And rightly so, because it has impacted the world in such a big way. And the other thing that was changing the world was China. So I got so excited about China. And so that's why I became the founding partner for Asia. And the first offices I opened in Beijing initially, and then later Shanghai as well. And I understand at the time you had this interesting way of deciding how to invest. You drew a line in the book. How did that whole thing come about? The year 2000 was a very funny period. 1999, 2000. Anything that had .com was going crazy for no good reasons, just measured on eyeballs. Even though there was no path to profitability, nobody cared. Valuations were sky high. Everything was in the billions. So I was no longer a young kid at that time. So I couldn't just blindly invest in something that had no path to profitability. So I said, okay, why don't I draw a line in my book and on the left, write what I know for sure. And on the right, I would put what I was still unsure about. So all the business models I was unsure about of the companies like Inktomi, InfoSeek, AskGeef, InfoSpace, all these companies, right? eBay, Amazon. And then, okay, it started to fill up the whole page. So I said, okay, what do I know on the left? For sure, the internet will grow, number one. China will grow, number two, and that's it. So I asked myself, since I know these two will happen, what could I invest in that will surely make money if these two things happen? And after thinking about it for a long time, I realized that it was the operating system of the internet in China. But what was the operating system of the internet? What is the operating system of the internet? That was difficult. Was it Microsoft? No. Was it Cisco since they supplied all the devices? No. Was it the Explorer equivalent at the time? Netscape, and I didn't think so. So in the end, I concluded that it was search because that's what we still do today as soon as we go in. So that got me very, very interested in search. So we talked to all the companies that have come into the DFJ family, all the search companies, those that came to our friends. We talked to the incumbents, we talked to the customers, and we realized that Baidu stood out perfectly. Because the way you measure a search company is relatively easy because it's objective, it's speed and relevance. And Baidu was the fastest and the most relevant because they had a completely new architecture. So the choice of Baidu was easier than deciding what to invest in using the line in the book. That was the more difficult part. So they were better so, than like right. OpenFine because that was the technology incumbent then, right? And Baidu was correct. the upstart. By far, by far. Uh, we measured it, it was better. And we spoke to the customers. They were moving as well. They were thinking of switching to Baidu, but not yet. They hadn't switched yet. Mm -hmm. So we took a risk, but that's the nature of venture capital. Right? You have to take those risks. At the time when you jumped into Baidu, they were a small startup, no revenue. They were in the market for nine months. No one else was jumping into it. And you decided to make that big play of 7.5 million. So was it the entrepreneurs like Robin and Eric who convinced you that it was worth that big giant bet this one year, your first time? Yeah, I think um, obviously the team was amazing. Robin and Eric were amazing. They really knew what they were talking about. Robin had spent his life doing search, at least the last few years of his life. And Eric was a boy Friday. He could do everything. And he had a lot of charisma too, because he interviewed a lot of people in Silicon Valley, etc. He was kind of a semi-journalist for a while. So the team made a lot of difference. But 
after deciding to invest in the operating system of the internet in China, deciding that that was search, finding the best company in that space, there was nothing else I wanted. So in the year 2000, when most people invested in anything that walked, that had www.com, I only wanted one. So we only invested in one company in the year 2000, which was Baidu. So since it's the only company I wanted, I decided to take as big an investment as I could make. And after I filled my requirements on that, I could think about other things. So that's why we could take it all. There were other people wanting to put a million here, a million there, and together they could form a consortium. I came, I liked it very much. I took it all. And in the end, we allowed IDG to invest a million with us, and that's it. And the rest were re-ups from existing investors. And were you very involved in the decision-making? Because you had two out of seven board seats. Yes, I had two seats on the board, so there was a big representation because we were the largest investor and became the largest shareholder later. Besides having two out of seven, there was also an executive committee of four, and we had two as well. So yes, we had a lot of responsibilities on our shoulders, but we consulted a lot with the other investors, and the other shareholders were from overseas, from the US, so they relied on us a lot, and they would vote with us. Because we were in the same boat as them, we were shareholders and investors and non-executive, and we didn't have any conflict. So they were quite reliant on our take of any suggestions by the team. Were there any big decisions that you made at the time? Oh, yes. Yes. I wouldn't say uh, big decisions that we made. I would say that we made together with the team. Yes, we made some very big decisions. Because we were at that time a technology provider to Sohu and Sina. So because we were suppliers of technology to these people, we couldn't compete with them. And if we competed with them, we would lose their business. But because they had the power of the negotiation, they were always trying to make sure that our price per click was low. And since they were so powerful, they could keep it low. And even though we would increase the volume a lot, they could reduce the price so that the net revenues remain roughly the same. And that's not the way you grow a firm. So we were pressured on the revenue side because there were renegotiations of pricing every time. So we then realized that we had to compete and be our own website and not just be behind the scenes, powered by Baidu. And launching Baidu was hugely risky because we would lose all our revenue suddenly. And what if there was no take-up? Then we would die. So we started first with a temporary site called Shufen, fully owned by us powered by us, but nobody knew that. So it was very clean. And, and then we saw the take up very, very good. And then we changed it to Baidu. And the rest that they say is history. But credit should be given to Robin and Eric because they were the ones who strategized and came up with these ideas. And the best thing I did was to say, yes, I agree. And in August 2015, when Baidu listed, were you surprised by their performance? 750 was the IPO price. It shot to 4 billion on the first day. And that's why it has the record of the best performing IPO. I was surprised by the 4 billion number. I was unhappy with the 750, but we were convinced by the bankers that Chinese companies were unknown. Nobody has made money from China. China's like a big black hole. You put money in, never comes out. So we need to go out with a sweet price. So we had to do what the bankers advised. And so we priced ourselves lower than what I thought the value should have been. So we kind of underpriced it a bit to ensure that the take-up was good. But in the end, it was not just good, it was marvelous. And it shot up to $4 billion. So although we hold the record of the best performing stock, that's not necessarily something to be extremely joyous about. It also means that we underpriced it somewhat. So it would have been better if we had priced it, say, at one5 or $2 billion, then it shot to 4 
and we might not have the record, but we would have had less dilution for the amount we raised, or we could have raised more money. Looking back, but it was a very successful IPO, and the company is a big player today. So I don't think there's anything to regret. And you were described as having the Meta's touch because after that you had Kongdong and Focus Media, and they all had multipliers an incredible amount. Were you thinking at the time, because of all this success, that you were ready to start your own firm as opposed to going under ePlanet? Yeah, my role in Focus was less because by that time, I had already reduced my role in DFJ because I had already wanted to come out to start my own fund. But I was still chairman of the investment committee and supported the deals. But yeah, with the performance of these three companies and with another three IPOs, we had a very, very good performance. In fact, if you circle the portfolio that we created, it would have been the best in the world. So yeah, with that, I felt that maybe I should do it myself. I came out and started because together with four other partners, my brother, my old schoolmate, Jeffrey, and two guys that he introduced me to. One was Dr. Khalil Bin Bin and uh, a lady named Linda Lee. And then I found a very good CFO named Raymond, who's still with us today. So in fact, all of us are still together. And we started because fund was one, two, three, four, five, six. And as I said, we're still together today. So we're enjoying ourselves. And I read that when you founded Vickers, you actually sold some of your Baidu shares and invested pretty much all of your money into Vickers. Were you not nervous about that, having succeeded so well and just thrown into this new venture? Yeah, I didn't start that way. I had a backer initially, and then later I decided to buy his shares. And then I raised a little bit of money from my ex-Goldman people. And that's when I actually met Khalil Bin Bin, who has now you know, become my best friend. He was introduced to me by Dr. Jeffrey Chi. So in terms of nervousness, no, I fully believe in what we were doing. Actually, the risk of the GP, the venture capitalist, is mainly reputation because the whole business model of venture capital is that you raise capital. If you make money, you get like 20, 25, 30% of the profits. If you lose money, actually the VC doesn't lose much except his own investment in the fund, but you could lose a lot of LPs money. So actually the risk is not that high from that perspective, but you would lose a lot of reputation and you never raise another fund if you lost people's money. So I wouldn't say that the fear was losing my money. The fear was losing my reputation and losing people's money, that people who believed in you. So that was my biggest fear, losing their money more than mine. But in the early days, reputation was something that you had to build as well, right? Because you had naysayers saying, oh, you succeeded because you had big names like ePlanet backing you and now you're alone. So how do you build that reputation from the ground up? Well, I had some reputation from DOJ ePlanet because I was involved in a very successful fund. I was the chairman of the fund. I was the founder of the Asian team. So yes, people were doubtful whether I could replicate the success exactly. But there were enough people who had some faith I was ahead, right? So I must have contributed sufficiently. And in fact, I remain on the board of DFJE plan until 2008, even way after I started because, and that also showed that I didn't leave because I didn't perform. I continued to be on the board. In fact, I remained chairman of the investment committee until I started because the investment committee. And then I resigned as chairman of the previous fund. And I remain a shareholder until now. I'm still a shareholder of DFJE Planet One. I had no executive role once I started to avoid any conflict. So in those early days, how did you go out seeking deals for your new VC? What was the best platform that you found to generate new leads? Yeah, at first, we were very reliant on earning shoe leather. So we had to go out and hunt for deals because we were unknown. It was a totally new name. 
because so we tried to do things that would result in a lot of deal flow. So Jeffrey was then a adjunct professor at SMU. Kale was his normal self, which is he entertained every night, every night. I think that maybe two weeks a year that he doesn't have guests. There's no physician to Malcolm Forbes as well. So good connections. That's right. Yeah, indeed. And he knows the royal family in Morocco very well. And as a result, he, he knew a lot of very highly influential people. And he's just naturally kind and he loves everybody and there's no defense for love. So that was our secret weapon, Khalil. And then Linda, because she grew up in China, she is totally Chinese and China is very important to us. And Linda was from Beta. Beta is very big in the tech space, in the startup space. And then my brother, who's been in IT for so long, also brought a lot of deals. So in the end, we had a small team, all partners, and we worked very hard to raise money and worked very hard to get deal flow. Today is different. We're more established. We have a track record. So the deals mostly come to us. It's still a lot of work to sieve them, to filter them, because we get like 5,000 deals a year today. And it takes a lot of effort and time and experience. The good news is we keep getting better because we're a learning system and make less mistakes. And the interesting thing is that you used to be a generalist fund, but now you're a deep tech fund. So how did that mm. transition happen for you to decide you wanted to niche down? I started by being very interested in the internet. And that's why I invested in Baidu and Kongchong, et cetera. As we went along, we realized that in the B2C space, you needed more and more money to acquire customers. And so the biggest pocket wins. And number two, if you have a new idea, a new product, the chances of it succeeding is actually very low. For every Instagram, you have a thousand failures of Instagram wannabes. For every Twitter, for every Facebook, there were thousands of failures. And the winner takes all because of the network effect. So that's not a good business model for venture capitalists to be in, right? Because the chances of you finding the Facebook amongst all the social networks is so small. So that's why the failure rate is so high. And so we have quite a high failure rate. I mean, not as high as the industry average. Industry average is like 60 over percent failure. We have a failure rate of about 34 or something like that. But it's tough having a 34% failure rate because that's measured in dollar terms. In number of companies, it's more than 34%. So let's say it's 50. If you have 10 companies, five of them fail, and they're like your children, right? Because you invest in them, you nurture them, and then you grow them, and then they become friends. And when they die, it's because you've lost faith in them because you stopped funding them. If you keep funding them, they never die. So at some point, you have to bite the bullet and say, enough is enough. I no longer believe in you. And that's very sad because if you're a father or a parent, you have five children, you would spend the most time on the weakest. But as a venture capitalist, you have to spend time with the strongest because when you lose, the maximum you can lose is one X. The maximum you can gain is unlimited. You can make a thousand X. So clearly it's pushing the winners. So it's like being a father and then you have five kids, two of them a week and you say goodbye and then you focus on the strong. That's very sad. It's very hard to do. So besides the losing of money and the failures, it was tough emotionally. So I wanted to reduce the failure rate a lot just because of that. And I looked at all the data as chairman of the investment committee. I looked at all the data and our performance. I realized that in these tikam type bets, we made more mistakes. So what were we really good at? We were really good because we have a lot of tech guys. Right? We have so many PhDs, so many advanced degrees. So we were particularly good at assessing technology risks. So does it work? But not good at assessing 
market risk will people buy? Having a PhD doesn't help me guess whether you will like this social network or whether you prefer this bike sharing or car sharing company. In fact, I have no idea what you would like. I can't even guess what my wife liked for Christmas. So why should we be in a space that is needing us to guess? That's not what LPs pay us to do. They pay us to do something that we're superbly, supremely good at, and that's tech. So I gradually morphed us into more deep tech. And with Fund 6, we are purely deep tech today. But that required us to move and expand because deep tech doesn't come mostly from Asia. It comes mostly from the West. Uh, and today we have offices in New York. We have a presence in Miami. We are in LA. We are in San Diego. We are in San Francisco, Palo Alto, London, Shanghai, and Singapore. So we have become a global firm with about half our deal flow from the US, a quarter from Europe, and a quarter from Asia. This kind of approach that you use, is it common among VCs? Because when you lay out that way, it makes so much sense to focus on what you are good at. You see, how do you measure uh, good performance? Let's say a VC has 10 companies, nine fail. One of them make 100 times. The whole fund makes 10x. He feels like a hero because the result is good. LPs are happy and they invest in a second fund. Why should he change? And then his second fund, maybe he does two out of 10 that really hit the ball out of the park. He becomes invincible, right? All the LPs come back and invest in his fund three. So based on results, he would feel emboldened. He would feel empowered. And the LPs would believe in him because he's done very, very well. But that's not quite my cup of tea because I ask myself, you know, supposing that 10 company that succeeded was in my second fund and not in my first. And then I have nine failures out of nine. Then I'm dead, right? And then fund two would have been very good, but I would not have been able to raise fund two because fund one didn't do well. So it's just too much volatility for my liking. And so I decided to cut the risk and keep the returns as far as I could. And that's normally very difficult to do because when you reduce risks, you reduce returns. But I felt that we knew enough about technology that we could become the preferred partner. That's one. Number two, I decided to narrow the type of technological risk we were willing to take. So let me explain. Since we are taking technology risks and we like sort of really holy grail type breakthroughs, so that would be highly risky, right? But we decided we will not invest in a breakthrough that's still a dream because that's too risky. We also would not invest in breakthroughs that have already been made and the whole world already knows about because that would be too expensive. So we decided on a small little Goldilocks zone across all tech industries that was cheap enough so that there's enough upside. And the breakthrough was already made, except that people still don't believe. And then when we come in with money, we come in with credibility, we come in with our friends, we fill the hole that they had. And then after that, we de-risk the whole thing quite a lot. Do you feel that when you took that approach that the potential companies you could invest in dropped a lot? I mean, you had 5,000 knocking. I think you used to consider 1,000 of them. Now it would be a lot less. Or were you not so concerned because you already had your portfolio companies and you were going to throw everything into growing them so it didn't matter? I think the answer is both your answers. Firstly, we did feel that perhaps we needed to broaden our deal flow from the developed countries. And that's why we opened all these offices in the West. And we were quite confident we could get a deal flow. So I hired people who had experience in those countries. So the people who are in Palo Alto, Sin Hong and Po Hui, both of them studied at Stanford. They did their PhD there. So they already had friends and family and networks. So they could hit the ground running. 
And then Kenneth went to Michigan, did his undergrad, got the first class there. He decided to do an EMBA in San Francisco with U of Penn West Campus. So that would give him a, enough of a deal flow as well. And so they kind of hit the ground running in San Francisco. New York, Chris studied at Columbia and did both his undergrad and master's. So New York is his hometown. So he felt very comfortable there. So he would hit the ground running too. And then we continued to have our secret weapon, Khalil, who goes all around the world. He has thousands of friends. All I had to do was shift his focus to say that we like tech deal. So go and spread the word amongst all your contacts. Jeffrey did his PhD at MIT. And he lives in Shanghai and Singapore. So we had enough of a deal flow. And my brother, Damien, his doctorate is in IT and business. So he would continue to bring deals from that perspective. But my life became that of a nomad because I had to travel like crazy. So uh, some years I spent a third of my time at home and the rest of the time traveling. So that was tough. And you mentioned Kaleo quite a few times, and I think he was the guy who brought Samumet in, and that is the yes, company yeah. you're always talking about because it's your main focus. Could you share how that came into Vickers? Yes, it's the largest company that we have in our portfolio. I wouldn't say it's my only focus because I have a lot of children, I have a lot of portfolio companies, so we have a lot of very, very exciting companies. But yes, it's certainly our biggest portfolio company, and it can certainly change the world. Samumet they found a way to drug one of the largest pathways known to men called the signaling pathway. And that controls all degenerative diseases and diseases in which the cells are going haywire, like overgrowing and never dying, like cancer, like fibrosis of the lungs or liver or any organ. And they finally found a way to drug this pathway successfully because this pathway was discovered in 1982 and everybody and his mother has been trying to drug this pathway unsuccessfully. And some of that we believe has done it. So they have two drugs in clinical trials, phase three. One of them is a very big disease called osteoarthritis. And we're looking forward to a readout in seven months or so of the phase three results. The next milestone will be the NDA, which is a new drug application. And then after that, we're off to the races selling for the first time an injection that can reduce cartilage loss or even grow cartilage potentially. Grow your own cartilage from a single jet of a small molecule. This would be a world first. And indeed, Khalil brought that deal. Khalil brought that deal and continues to bring a lot of exciting companies to the table. I was looking into what Osman does. I mean, the way he presents is very catchy, how I'm reversing aging. I think normally people will look at it and think, oh, I'm quite skeptical. How do you know it's real or not? I mean, like this was the second biggest bet that you went in right after Baidu. So what was it that convinced you that this was the real thing and it wasn't another Theranos, for instance? Oh, it's not so difficult because Theranos is different as a diagnostic. This is a drug company. The FDA is the final arbiter. If it goes into clinical trials, there's a lot of scrutiny already given to the company. But when we invested, they had no clinical trials yet. They had preclinical trials. So we went to the lab. We did a lot of extensive work. I actually got to know Shin Hong at that time is a specialist in the wind pathway. His supervisor was the founder of the first wind gene. So I had expert people to advise me as well. So the science was solid. We were convinced. We know our due diligence is quite thorough. There's this company, the COVID-19 vaccine company that we're working on now. It's called Emergex. We spent more than a year, 14 months before we actually made the investment. Could you share a bit about Emergex? Because it's quite exciting where you can eventually put it into a micro patch or the band-aid as opposed to all the trouble that we're facing now. COVID-19 is a terrible pandemic, right? And the immune system is comprised of both antibodies and T-cells. Antibodies 
attack the virus. But if the virus escapes the antibody and infects a cell, say a lung cell, cells are by the way much larger than viruses, the virus enters the cell, it will do two things. The cell will try to kill the virus. It won't succeed, but it will try to kill some of them. Those that it doesn't kill will multiply into hundreds or thousands of viruses, and then the cell will release all of them. So it's a manufacturing plant for the virus. The killed virus will be chopped up into little bits of virus, and these bits will be displayed outside the cell by the cell to show that they are an infected cell and need help. Then a T cell will come around, and the T cell will realize that this is an infected cell, and it will kill it. So T cells kill the factory, and antibodies kills the antagonist or the antigen, the virus. If you only have an antibody response, then you better be perfect and make sure that no cells get infected. Because once they infect a cell, the antibodies cannot kill an infected cell. So an antibody can only kill the virus. But if it goes into the manufacturing plant, into the factory, and it starts making more virus, antibodies are useless. They have to wait until all the viruses are released, and then they have to try to attack all the virus. But you always want to bomb the factory, right? Because it's very hard to kill all of them when they come out. So in the world, there have been many eradicating vaccines, like the polio vaccine, like smallpox, like yellow fever. They were all involving both antibodies and T-cells. The best example of an antibody-only vaccine is the flu vaccine. And the flu vaccine has not eradicated the flu. It's still with us. So there is no expectation by most scientists that any of these antibody vaccines currently in the market will be successful in eradicating COVID-19. So because of that, there are a few of us who are working on T-cell vaccine. I would say Emergex is the leader in that space. And we have applied for clinical trials. We hope to be ready for emergency use sometime in the late summer of next year. So we're waiting excitedly for clinical results to see how well it works. It certainly worked very well in preclinical. That's why we can go into clinical studies. But the science is solid. Tom Redimarker, who is the founder and CEO of the company, is a genius. And he's been working on this for like two and a half decades. So it's not as if it's COVID that made him do this. He is, in my view, probably the world's foremost expert on RNA viruses and how to stop them. And it so happened that COVID-19 is an RNA virus, but his attentions were focused elsewhere before COVID-19. Dengue, pandemic flu, hand, foot and mouth, or potentially a corona pandemic. He had in his mind SARS-1 and a universal corona vaccine. So when coronavirus, when COVID-19 hit, it was easy for him to shift gears. So I would call this Gen 2 vaccines, and I, I'm waiting with bated breath for Gen 2 to come out. You see, whenever you want to assess a vaccine, there are three Ds that you have to watch. One is durability. The flu vaccine is known to reduce in efficacy by 16% per month from a waning of the antibodies naturally, and also from the escape mutations that occur as a result of selective pressure. Let me explain that. Let's say you design a vaccine that elicits antibody A because the virus is virus A. So you try to elicit antibody A to neutralize and bind to virus A. Virus A is mutating. And so you also have virus B. All the virus A gets killed by the antibodies, but there is no protection against virus B. So, okay, he managed to reduce his viral load quite a lot because all the A's died. And he also reduces viral diversity because A is gone, but he has B's and C's. So if he happens to infect somebody else, which virus will go to the other person? It would be virus B and C, not A, because A is all killed. 
The other person is also vaccinated with vaccine A, antibody A, but he caught virus B and C, for which he has no protection. So he has no reduction in viral load or viral diversity and gets very sick. And he infects B and C to the next guy. So you get this natural selective pressure of B and C as opposed to A, and all A gets killed and disappears. But B and C is the one that now spread. So vaccine producers have to scramble to now produce vaccine B and C to elicit antibodies B and C. But Emergence doesn't have that issue, right? Because they have created a whole library of peptides identifying all these different mutations that they can combat. Yeah, that's almost what they do. But let me, I guess, correct that a little. A virus has a surface, and on the surface, they have a lot of spike proteins. Inside the virus, they also have a lot of internal proteins. The virus is not empty, it's not hollow. There are lots of stuff inside that keeps the virus alive. It's like our internal organ. When a virus tries to cheat the antibodies, it changes its surface mainly because what's inside keeps it alive. So to give you an example, let's say a criminal is trying to evade the authorities. He would disguise himself, change his hair, change his eyes, even go for plastic surgery, potentially. Change his nose and whatever, right? Change the color of his hair. He doesn't change his liver. He doesn't change his intestines or his stomach. Same for the virus. So we identify an infected cell. We identify the factory by looking at the chopped up virus. And the chopped up virus is mostly made up of internal protein because volume is more massive than surface area. So when you chop anything up, like when you eat a piece of meat, not all the meat will have skin, right? Only some of it will have skin. But most of it doesn't have skin because there's so much volume that has no skin at all. So it's the same for the virus. If you chop up a virus, you get steaks and all these things are displayed. And we collected all these steaks and we say which one is the most in most different blood types. And then we mimic that by making a vaccine that looks like the steak. And most of it is from the internal protein. And many of them are structural proteins that are unchanging and non-structural as well. So because of that, if you are focused on T-cell, you have no choice but to focus on the chopped up virus, which contains a lot of things the virus cannot change. So we don't have to guess what it's going to mutate to because the liver is still the same. Singapore, for instance, just got their first set of vaccines. Would it be a challenge to convince governments that Imagex vaccine is one that they need to purchase after it's available? Data speaks. So I think we don't have to convince anyone. They can see the data. And here's what I expect. I think that it's going to be difficult for antibody-based vaccines to stop the mutation because there will be selective pressure. And eventually, there will be mutations that the vaccines was not designed to stop. And then what happens next is clinical trials, or maybe not a very shortened clinical trial with a new vaccine. Maybe you don't even need clinical trials because the construct is the same. It's just changing the mRNA. And then they launch a new one, but that will be months in between. So there will be this series of lockdowns again if it spreads because of mutations. And no government would be happy with that type of a situation. Apps and flows, apps and flows, right? And mask wearing and social distancing and life will never go back to normal. Like take, for example, the flu. Imagine the flu or the common cold was as lethal as COVID-19. Would you be happy with the current flu vaccine? No, because the efficacy drops and you would never feel safe. You don't mind getting the vaccine because even if you catch it, it's not a death sentence. But in COVID-19's case, it's different. 
So a vaccine as effective as the flu vaccine will not suffice. We need to eradicate this virus. And to eradicate this, you must have dedicated T-cell companies that focus on CD8 T-cells, which is cytotoxic, CTL, cytolymphocytes, killer T-cells. Because there are other T-cells that are more like messenger ones, CD4, for example. And then another one that you are looking deeply into is RWDC. It's a Singapore company mm. and it's doing something really new and really exciting as well. Could you share a bit about that company too? Yeah, what they make is what we call a bioevanescent materials. So plastic, but they are bioevanescent, which means they are degradable without composting, without collecting and under natural conditions. So you can leave this bobbing in the seed. This is a bioevanescent made from RWDC's material. Oh. So it's plastic fork. It looks like a plastic fork. It feels like a plastic fork. High temperature, no problem. It's 100% waterproof. But if you leave this bobbing in the sea, it disappears into fish food. That's very exciting. Uh, we can make straws, lids, cups. This is a corrugated straw. You can see it bounces back. It's not like a paper straw. It's thin. It's waterproof, high temperature. So that's very exciting because the world is so polluted with plastic. It's not funny. Soon we'll have more plastic in the sea than fish. It's causing a problem called myplasticosis because these little things degrade. It's not that they don't degrade. If you leave this in the sea, they will degrade. But they don't degrade into food. They degrade into micro-indestructible plastic molecules that can go into the fish and then come into us as we eat the fish. And it can cause strokes. It can cause all sorts of blockages because they are indestructible plastic molecules that are not meant to be eaten. I understand that this plastic issue is something that you were concerned about for a long time. You were actually looking for a company like RWC for a very, very long time before you found them. So how did they first come to your attention? Actually, it came to Sin Hong, his good friend, a guy named Chao Tan, who introduced us to the company. And he's somebody I respect and somebody who has already brought us a couple of deals and also invested in, in us. So he was an oil trader, and in his free time, he invested in companies together with his partner, Sergio, and they were the ones who invested in RWDC and also in Emergex. So when they brought this deal to us, I was totally um, blown away. Initially, I found it too good to be true and hard to believe, but as we dug more and more and more and more, we found out that this thing really works, and the rest is, I guess, history, because we're now the biggest backer of the company. So obviously you have found a lot of these gems. And as I understand it, Vickers has a very unique approach to deciding on which company to invest in. You have this thing called the silver bullet. What does it mean and have you ever used it yourself? The silver bullet is something that allows any of the investment committee members to invest a million dollars in one company. Even if all the other investment committee members said no, you can still use it. It's a silver bullet. You can kill anything. So you can go through anything. And the reason why we have it is because sometimes when you are really trying to invest in a paradigm-changing company, Unison is not the right approach. And this is something I started at DFJ, ePlanet, in the Asia team, we already had a silver bullet. So have I used it before? I actually was going to use it for a company called Chooch. And I already promised the entrepreneur that I can commit this amount of money because even if my friends say no, if all my investment committee members say no, I, I will use my silver bullet. So I guaranteed him that. I brought it to the investment committee and surprise, surprise, they approved the investment. I thought I would not win it because it was at a very risky stage. The company was worth only 12 million. We typically invest at valuations of like 50, 100, 200 type valuation. This is a company worth only 12, which means it still doesn't have a full product yet but they were convinced. It's a visual search company. 
so search again. And I guess they trusted my instinct where search is concerned. So all the IC members said, yes. Yeah. So in the end, I didn't have to use my silver bullet. And the company started off a little slower initially and then started picking up. And then it started to improve on its AI. And recently, it won this humongous contract with the US military. This contract has a $950 million cap. They'll probably close like $400 million worth of contracts with the military over the next five years. And the valuation has exploded from 12 to 200. So that was our best performing company in Fund 6. You still have that made us touch for search. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. So far, so good. Very excited about Chooch. And one of the things I noticed as well, that you also don't allow anyone to vote until they've spent time with every single entrepreneur whose company is under consideration. Yes, you know, if the team is so important, how can you vote if you've never met them? Yeah. So a lot of global companies don't because they rely on the local guy to give his opinion. I felt that that isn't right. But the drawback is if you implement a rule like that, you can't scale. Because if I have 100 people, then all of us has to see all 100 people's deals, right? And we'll be too busy. So the cap would be much earlier than otherwise. But that's okay. I don't need to be the biggest fund in the world. I'm just trying to be the best. And I was really impressed like you said that you want to spend time with them. You would travel with them. You would invite them to stay in your house. You really go above and beyond to ensure that you really see them in all surroundings. And you said once that this whole thing is a lifestyle that your whole family, even your dog has to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. And so both Khalil and I, our homes are all open in the sense that we don't lease out our home. We don't rent them out. We keep them open so that we can use them. When we travel, we can invite friends, we can have dinners. So yeah, everybody has to be involved. And so my wife is pretty busy entertaining all the time. But now we have help and we have chefs that can help us. So it makes life a bit easier to run this lifestyle. I'll give you an example. If you wanted to interview a secretary or an assistant, you may have two interviews, three interviews. After you spend those interviews, you hire them, you will still feel that you're sometimes right, sometimes wrong. Why? Because when you work with them, you found things out that you didn't know during the interviews. You must interview a person in a relaxed environment to a point that the interview is over and now we're talking about different things. And only then can you get to know the person, what they are really like. And if the value system is different from yours, that's a problem. A fit won't be good. So i rather spend the time first before I spend the money. So what kind of value systems are you looking for that will align with you? Well, first of all, the dreams must be aligned. If, for example, they are trying to pull a fast one on customers or they're trying to build a product that they can do a quick flip with and they want to sell to the first few fools, obviously those won't fit them because we are trying to make a difference. We are trying to build a product that is real and can stand the test of time. And we want to build a product in which the demand is already known and ready because we don't like to take market risk. It's not that I'm looking for people that are like me, not at all, but they can achieve their goals in many different ways. And the more different, the better, actually. So we have diversity. But they need to have drive. They need to have the same goals. They need to have the same values, uh, etc. And you can only do that by spending time. Khalil's mother once told him that if you want to really know a person, travel with them. And Malcolm Forbes once told Khalil, never do business with a person who is rude to a waiter. So I take some of, many of these things to heart. So I wonder, because you do such a deep dive into the person's character, looking back, what went wrong with 24chan, which you have said was your biggest failure? Oh, a few things. They were number three at that time. There were two other big players. 
Tianping, the Meituan. We were number three. And at that time, we were burning a lot of cash to acquire customers. CDH was also an investor together with us. And they were a big boy, much bigger than us. But they were also invested in Meituan. And eventually, they decided to back Meituan and stop funding 24 Trend. And we didn't have enough capital to fund them. So they died because we couldn't fund them. So if you ask me what was the biggest problem, the biggest problem was play in the space in which we ourselves were not enough to help the company. We didn't fill the gap. We were reliant on others. So we don't play in those type of spaces anymore. We don't play in very expensive acquisition of customers. We don't like the B2C space. And we don't like where it's a red ocean strategy. There were like 1,000 different players. I don't know if you read the book, Blue Ocean. Red ocean means everybody's fighting until the ocean is red with blood. So we generally invest in breakthroughs. So because breakthroughs, you have IP, IP is protecting you. So it's effectively a de facto monopoly for a fixed period of time. So we don't need such deep pockets. It's not that we don't invest in companies that need money. Clinical trials are expensive, but it's a fixed cost. Clinical trials is different from, oh dear, this company is spending so much, 5 billion. I need to raise 6 billion to spend more. That's different because that's an unknown amount of capital needed. We invest in companies that if they have to go through clinical trials, we calculate exactly how much it will cost them. And maybe they have 10 things to push through clinical trials. If we can't raise enough money, they can push two. And after that, they will have revenues, they will have money that contribute to the margins that can help to fund the rest. At what point did you decide that it was time to pull the plug on them? Because you don't pull the plug on everyone like Match Move. You knew that they needed to pivot and you were willing to stay with them until they found their niche. That's a very good question. I think in the case of 24 Trend, it's because the key is we didn't just have to fund their operations. We had to fund the cost of customer acquisition. That's a big difference. If a company needs you to fund the operation so that they can finish their software, that's different. Matchmove is a B2B2C company. They don't need to spend money to acquire customers at all. So that's different. So yeah, Matchmove pivoted from a game company into a payments company. And they continue to grow their space. And we continue to believe in them. And I think another company you're excited about is Ever as well, in Geothermal. Indeed. This is a company that Chris brought to us. Chris is from New York. Ever is actually a very interesting company. When John first came to see us in San Diego and he made his pitch, it was a very simple pitch. He basically said, the earth is warm. We can extract the heat. And we found a way to extract the heat in very clever ways. That has never been done before. So then he goes about telling me how other people extract heat from the ground. They have to find a reservoir of water, a pool of hot water in a permeable membrane. So how many such hot water can you find in the world? Only very few places. So that makes discovery very expensive and it makes extraction also expensive because you hit hot but dry wells often. So that makes the cost of geothermal so high that it prevents people from using geothermal. He's found a way to encase them in a pipe, extracting heat from conduction without a permeable aquifer. And he's found a way to drill horizontally and joining them and making them waterproof. So you have a closed loop. And because you have a closed loop, hot water rises, you extract the heat, water goes back down, and you get a thermal siphon effect without the need for parasitic pump load. So you don't need a pump. It will just turn almost like a perpetual machine which is not possible to have. But in this case, it's perpetual because energy is taken from the ground. So it's powered by the earth as a battery. So that's incredible. So when he told me this, I said, it sounds so simple. I'm surprised that nobody's done it. 
And after we did our due diligence, we found out that it's true. Nobody's done it this way. They're the only ones. And then they showed us all their ideas of how they can make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But the main breakthrough has already been made. The main breakthrough is no pumps. Number two, closed loop. And this is a paradigm shifting change. And in my view, decades from now, geothermal will be the main energy. And this is all patented, so you don't expect competition in this area. Well, we have 11 suites of patents. But when Standard Oil first drilled for oil, they also patented their methods of drilling oil. And then ESO bought them. And today they're one of the world's biggest oil companies. But they're not the only one. There's Shell, there's BP, right? So I don't expect that we will be a monopoly ever. But at the beginning, we certainly had to have a very good head start. So I just want to be the ESO of geothermal. That's good enough. 50 years, 100 years from now, we are still one of the top three, one top. We're doing a lot of things right. I think we certainly are the leader currently, and I think we'll be uh, the leader for a while. So the key now is to find a good partner or a few good partners, and I think we found them. We found them. So this round, I think we'll announce quite soon, early in the new year, and you will hear of an oversubscribed round with very good name players, big boys coming in, which will be a very strong validation. And people with deep pockets, because it's not cheap to build a plant, to build an ever loop is not cheap except that it goes on for 30 to 50 years, which reduces the cost. Because if you have no parasitic pump load, it's free after that because it just spins, right? And as long as it spins, it's free. So it's a one-time investment and after that, it's free. It's almost like solar. It's also free, except that solar is sometimes hot and sometimes not. So it's not base load. And you have to have mostly base load and a little bit of intermittent. You cannot have so much solar that at night, when people need to air condition or heat their house, they can't because there's no energy. So you can't. So you, you always have to have fossil fuel as the base. Wind is sometimes windy and sometimes not. And there are places like the equator where there's no wind. So you have to find a base load green energy. How many are there? Hydro and us. But hydro is not so green, right? When they build a three gorgeous dam in China, some species of dolphins became extinct. It's not so green. And, you know, millions of people were affected because you basically flood the whole area. So it's not so green. And it's not so aesthetically beautiful. And it uses a lot of land. You have to move people away. In geothermal, it's just two holes. We are 100 times less land intensive than solar and 1,000 times less land intensive than wind. 1,000 times. So if I draw a picture on the page, that's wind. And then a big part of it, one-tenth of it is solar. And then geothermal is a dot. And what's the plan in terms of rolling out and getting people to sign on board? Well, there are several milestones. Closing the A round is important. Then we're going to raise an infrastructure fund that allows us to invest, finding partners to invest in the projects, assigning the contracts with the countries or companies, and then delivering on the first project. And it doesn't take us that long to drill, a couple of years. And once that's done, and once you have a working, not prototype anymore, but a working plant that supplies electricity, then we're singing. And then the R&D will bring prices down. Even if you can only achieve incremental improvements thereafter, it will one day reach the price of fossil fuel because the paradigm shifting technological breakthroughs have already been made. So I'm convinced that geothermal will be the answer to the world. You see, you have to realize that the center of the earth is as hot as the surface of the sun. It's not as hot as the center of the sun, but it's as hot as the surface of the sun. And that's pretty damn hot. In the case of solar, the rule of thumb is you have a detached house, single story, and all the roof is solar panel. You can power the house. If you have a 20-story building, the roof only powers the 20th floor. 
because you can't have two layers of solar panels, right? <laughs> because one will be shaded. So if you have a high-rise country like Singapore, it won't work because we have many 20-story buildings. And if you have solar panels on top, it powers the 20th floor. But if you dig, and let's say you dig uh, three kilometers deep, let's say you can only power the 20th floor. When you dig two floors down, you can now power 19, 18, and 17 because it's hotter. You are not shading it. Then you build another story below that and you can power 15, 14, 13, 12, 11 because it's hotter. So we don't need to dig very, very deep to power a 20-story building. And everything is free underneath. There's no basements because we are digging kilometers down. It's lower than MRTs. So there's nothing there. And the surface outcrop is two holes. Everything is underground. What about maintenance costs, though? Will there be any of that over time? There is none. Because what do you have there? You have pipes and our horizontal is uncased. We actually have invented a chemical that solidifies the rock. So that's quite a clever thing that they invented. There's no maintenance involved. And the water just moves without a pump. So we have no mechanical parts, no moving parts other than the liquid. So it's maintenance-free. And so now you are focused on raising for fund six, you mentioned briefly, and you're targeting $500 million. So what are you investing in thereafter? Well, we already have 14 companies in our portfolio, which we are very happy with. And about half our money typically goes into the best of the previous funds, what we call best of Vickers. So like uh, Summermed is there, Matchmove is there, RWDC is there. And then the new companies are like Ever, Emergex. We have another company called Artbug that makes therapeutics for COVID-19 and for inflammation, obesity, etc. We have a company called AWEC. It's a kidney dialysis machine that's the size of a handbag. And then we have a company called Lumitron that has an x-ray machine that is 1,000 times more accurate than traditional x-ray using lasers instead of white light. So that's also very exciting. We have Chooch, the visual search company I mentioned, which will make sense out of any picture. So that's very, very important. And the contract with the military is to make sense out of drone images from satellite images. They can detect whether North Korea is doing something fishy or they can detect whether there are fires in San Francisco or in California. So very, very useful and very important because computers cannot read pictures. They read text, but church can. And because we're recording this in 2020 there's COVID. How has that impacted the work that you're doing? Because you mentioned before, you travel all the time, you entertain all the time. So that must have been a big hit on how you do business. It's changed it a lot. Uh, the biggest hit is the travel. So I had to focus on Singapore because since March, I've been here in Singapore. It's the longest time I've ever been in one place. So I've got to know Singaporeans better and people, residents in Singapore better. I've also been able to spend more time with my companies because with my companies, I can Zoom very effectively. Raising capital has been harder because all my road shows had to be cancelled, but that's fine. We can always raise money later. So right now, let's focus on performance. So we focus on our portfolio companies and make sure they perform. And with good track record, we can raise even more money later. The sequence is slightly off a little. We are now going to perform before we raise the fund, but that's fine. And what was your first reaction when you heard about COVID? Do you reach out to your companies? to give advice? Yeah, we were lucky because in Singapore, we had seen SARS-1 before. So before all the shutdowns in, in the US, when we saw it coming to the US, we felt that this is going to be bad. And so I sent a note to everyone to conserve cash and to be prepared for an economy that's going into a tailspin. And then two, three weeks later, that's what happened. And another thing I would love to talk about before we wrap up is 
the succession plan. It's something you've talked about quite a bit. And you say that you wanted to ensure that when you left, it would not leave with you and you wanted to institutionalize your knowledge as well so that what you were deciding with your gut could be explained in words. Can you explain a bit about how you're planning that succession plan for Rickers? Yeah, I'll tell you what I think about institutionalizing knowledge. If I were to bring an apprentice with me, say a young, super smart guy, to be my PPS, principal private secretary, like in the government, I can teach him a lot. He would probably absorb, I think, say, if he's very good, 60%. If he is then transferring knowledge to his assistant, 60 of 60 is 36%, right? And then 60 of 36 is like 20. So basically, it will never last as long as Goldman Sachs, because eventually not much has been transferred. You need to institutionalize knowledge. So we need to have it written down firsthand so that everybody can read that. And 100% of it can be transferred, even to the fifth generation, to the sixth generation. So that's what we're trying to do. So I'm in talks with some trainers who can come in and really spend the time interviewing me and spending time with my other partners. Jeffrey has a lot to teach. Linda has a lot to teach. And my brother Damien as well. And make sure that it's all written down and then he can pass on to anyone down the line. In fact, that's the reason why Lee Kuan Yew was encouraged to write the books by the cabinet, so that he can institutionalize all his experience and knowledge, and it won't be lost in the apprentice-type transfer. Do you think you eventually write your own book? Probably with some help, I do, because I don't have any retirement plans in that sense, to retire and do nothing. At 70, I want to reduce my role, which is 12 years from today, in investing. And I want to spend more time with our foundation, so I'll still be busy. But if I could get somebody to shadow me, and help me write this thing, then yeah, maybe I'll do that because it would help with visualization. So I noticed something when I was researching as well, that when you started the company, you said, I own 100% and then you're down to 30% because you gave all the shares away to attract the best people. I think a lot of people listening would want to know, who do you look for when you're hiring? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I look for people who are, of course, very smart. That's very important. Let me make one thing clear, right? As venture capitalists, our success comes from the companies, not from us. So the smartest guys are not us. The real deliverers of value are the geniuses, are the people we invest in. So I need smart people with us because we have to help these geniuses and we need to at least keep up with them and find gaps in which we can add value. So because of that, I have to hire people who have really excelled academically to begin with. Because we're dealing with scientists and we're dealing with people are changing the world with new discoveries. And yet they must be nice because people, relationships are so important. Because although we invest in them, we cannot lord over them because they are the ones that are running, right? They're the ones that are delivering all the results. So you cannot lord over them. You have to become their partner. So you must find gaps that they are not good at and add value. Hopefully, there are not too many gaps. The lesser the number of gaps, the better. But whenever there is a gap, we try to fill that in or we try to help the company fill it. So I need people who are multi-skilled. And I'm not looking for people who are like me because a successful VC can be run in many different ways. I have one way of doing it. But they must agree with a few principles. Like number one, we're a deep tech firm. I can't change that. And I don't think it will be changed under my watch. We don't invest in B2C type companies. We don't invest in burning customer acquisition type companies. So if you love predicting what the next Instagram is, we're not the right company to join. We're a deep tech firm. We look for breakthrough technologies all around the world. If you love, say, India 
and when they want to invest in India, we're not, we're a global firm. So I look for people who can fit into those molds that I've created. That's one. And they need to be able to keep up with all the geniuses that we deal with, that we will find in our lifetime. I need people who can quickly learn things that they don't know yet. And many of the things that they don't know are sometimes the finance stuff, because I have a lot of PhDs, so they might not understand equity options, the warrants and convertibles and IPOs and green shoe. And all that is not difficult. It's quite easy to learn. You read an MBA book, you're already 80% there. With some experience, you're almost there. And then a lot of venture capital speak, they can learn too. Those are not difficult. These are soft subjects. You can't come in as an MBA and try to learn to be a PhD in biotechnology, but you can be a PhD in biotechnology and roughly get a semi-MBA from reading a few books. So the hard subject you must already have, and then the soft subject you can learn. And then you must cross into other domains that you are not so comfortable with, but you have a general understanding concept of science. So it's hard for, say, somebody who specialized in English, did a PhD in English, to join us because we're a D-Tech firm. But if you have a PhD in English, you can join a firm to find the next Instagram. You know why? Because nobody knows where it's coming from anyway. It's all guess. It's all a guess. So whatever background you come from, your guess is as good as mine. But if you're assessing whether T-cells will work, if you don't have a PhD in biotechnology, which I don't, you must be at least be willing to put in the time to understand enough to appreciate whether that this company is worth investing in. So we are looking for sponges, people who can absorb and learn and be hungry and have the patience to study. So in order for me to appreciate this company, Emergec, I had to do so much work. And for every work that my partner, Shin Hong, does, it takes me three times as long, five times as long, because he has a PhD in biology. Switching from one part of biology to another is easy. But for me, I have to go down from scratch every time. But I'm willing to do it. Not just willing. I'm willing and keen to do it because I'm curious. To what extent do you find that you are comfortable with understanding these things? Because it's a black hole, isn't it? Once you start, there's always so much to learn and learn and learn. At what point do you feel you're comfortable? When I have reached a point that I can make a conclusion. Let's say you, you want to buy a handbag. You can look at the stitching, you can look at the fashion, the style, the color, the leather, and you see how it looks on you. You can go much deeper, right? <laughs> you can find out what thread is made out of. You know, is this material you no know, cowhide or how was the tanning done? You can go very deep, but those don't matter anymore because they look good. It feels good. It fits with what you were looking for. And then you make a decision to buy. You can actually keep on asking and asking. There's no end. But those things don't change your decision. So when I reach a point where the details don't matter anymore, is when I'm comfortable. But until I reach that point, I, I don't buy because I'm not comfortable with making a decision from the gut. It probably takes you a while to make a decision on something new then. Sometimes it's a rush. I'm forced to decide quicker than I'm comfortable with. And then I quickly learn. And within a few months after that, most of the time so far, I'm lucky in that it's actually made me more comfortable with the deal. If it makes me less comfortable, I would then reduce my follow-ons in the company. Are there any big ideas you have changed your mind on recently? I would say I've become more and more convinced that Emergex is on the right track. So rather than changing my mind, it's made me more convinced because more and more data has come out. So when Tom told me that this thing is going to mutate, there will be selective pressure. And when you actually see the mutation happening, <laughs> you get more and more convinced. So... Tom has been quite amazingly predictive throughout this whole pandemic from day one. 
And so he's been saying that this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And everything happened like clockwork. So because of that, I really think that he he's probably the brightest mind to get us out of this crisis, which is destroying the world. The only good thing that came out from the pandemic is the carbon emissions have dropped. Aircrafts have stopped. So carbon emissions have really gone back a few years. So that's the only good thing. Because climate change is a very, very, very serious problem. You know, I only have 20 good years left, probably. I'm 58. In 20 years, I'm 78, 22 years. I'll be reaching sort of the average age of mortality. So I'm not going to suffer from this climate change. But every time we use the car, every time we use electricity, it comes from fossil fuel. So we are digging out from the ground carbon that we then release. That's crazy. It's amazing that we are still doing that. When it's quite clear that the excess carbon dioxide is causing the world to warm up, and it gets into a vicious circle because when the ice melts, all the reflection is gone from the ice. So it will then immediately get hotter and it will immediately melt more ice and then it gets into a vicious cycle. And we're going to get sea level rise that's unheard of. And it'll be so hot that all the beautiful places in the world currently will no longer be beautiful. It will become deserts. We all have to move to Canada and Alaska. It's crazy. People think that, oh, by that time we can find another planet. That's the craziest comment to make. If we can't control carbon in the most conducive environment on Earth where we can breathe the oxygen, if you go to any other planet, you can't breathe the air, right? If we can't even control carbon emissions in our most conducive planet, what makes us think we can do better in a planet in which it's trying to kill us? We can't even breathe the air. That's ridiculous. I did find it heartbreaking when I watched David Attenborough's Our Planet and he showed exactly all these things. The ice caps melting and he showed all these amazing rainforests and say, oh, after we shot it, it no longer exists because it's been cut down. But what I thought was amazing was he also showed Chernobyl as well, about how despite the disaster, give it time, nature has come back. Oh, oh, yeah. There were periods in when everything we are seeing now happened so climate change has happened many times before. We had ice age. We had all sorts of different times. There were times when the world was so hot, right? So yeah, you can come back. No problem. Once carbon dioxide drops, it will come back. Some of us might survive. Some of us might not. When the world becomes not hospitable to us. And then it will change, but it takes decades to change. So I'm quite convinced the human race will not be eradicated. But why put us through that? We have it in our power to do this. So Ever is, is fully involved with trying to solve that problem head on. So I'm very pleased that we have that company. RWC is solving the plastic problem head on. Emergex is solving pandemics head on, virus situation, bacteria situation head on. Some of that is trying to cure cancer and remove degenerative diseases. And they can also solve degenerative diseases of the brain, neural tissues. So which means ALS, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, everything can be tackled. Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, etc. And even if they only tackle cancer, wouldn't that be great for solving the cancer problem? So I'm so excited. Lumitron has reduced the size of a synchrotron, which is the only thing in this world today that can produce the accuracy of a thousand times. A synchrotron is one square kilometer in size. Lumitron has reduced it to a tabletop machine. AWAC has reduced a big machine that uses 70 liters of water to one that uses two liters of water. It's portable, you can carry it in your handbag and bring back life so that you don't live to dialyze. You dialyze to live. I just love to hear the passion that you have in each and every company that you've invested in. I can't imagine that you would ever want to retire and be away from being involved in what they're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I will ever retire, but I would like to give the baton, the CEO ship to somebody else when I'm 70. But I'm very happy to be a resource to anyone. I might be chairman or emeritus or something, I don't know, but or mentor. And I don't expect to be as sharp when I'm 80. And I don't expect to be as quick to pick up all this. I may not be as curious anymore. I, I might not. Because I don't find generally the average person who is 20 years older to be as good as they were when they were younger. So I don't want to overstay my effectiveness. So I'm very keen to pass it over to somebody else, younger, faster, quicker, more in touch to take over. As long as I don't have Alzheimer's, I think I can still contribute. So, and I hope to do that, but from an advisory capacity rather than running as I'm doing now. When I was in government, I had the privilege of working with Lee Kuan Yew on several projects. And he had so much to still give, even at that age, he was in his 70s. But if you were to compare his knowledge of the internet and my knowledge of the internet at that time, I was in my 30s and he was in his 70s. I knew so much more just because I live it. At that time, he was still typing with a few fingers, right? If you're typing with a few fingers, you cannot get to the internet quickly enough. And he was getting his secretary to print out his emails. And then he would circle this and circle that and fax it. So you won't be able to fully embrace the internet that, that way. Eventually, he became very uh, adept at typing and, because he started writing his memoirs. During the time when I interacted with him, I could see that it's not so easy as you get older. You can try to understand, but me describing that people are watching cats falling from the TV and laughing on YouTube, it would be hard for somebody who doesn't use it that way to envisage that. Eventually, we will all be cyborgs of some sort. We already are today because we are already using the computer of the phone to enhance our life. It's just that it's not stuck to our body. We don't feel like a cyborg. But we are, for all practical purposes, stuck to our phones, except that the delivery, we are using our fingers to actually pass the message to the phone and we're using our eyes to accept the message from the phone. Eventually, we don't need that. We can think it and then we become truly, I guess, connected with the AI world. Me, now, I can't imagine that life, but a young person who actually lives it, how am I going to compete with him? <laughs> yeah, I can give him some advice about the past. I can't select companies anymore. I can't see the future. The technological changes that are happening now is so compressed, it's incredible. We are, as Yuval Harari said, he wrote the book Sapiens and Homo Deus and 21 Things for the 21st Century. He said humans will become God, not the almighty monotheist type God, but like the Greek gods where we can control life because we will control every single life, including our own, and we will be immortal and we can do everything at the speed of light or even faster. So we would be like gods you know? in that sense, if you define it as people who are immortal, people who control life, people who can think and, and everything so quickly at the speed of light. With quantum, we're no longer limited by the speed of light now. Because quantum mechanics is instantaneous. It's incredible the decades to come, the centuries to come, the millenniums to come. It's going to be truly amazing. Let's make the planet good enough so that we can live to see it. So the prospect of us becoming gods excites you? Well, the prospect of, I guess, climbing a technological ladder and controlling all the things that cause us to suffer today. Sure. If you ask me, do I want to eradicate disease? Of course. Do I want to create energy? from nothing, of course I want that. So I wouldn't say that it's because I want humans to become gods, no. But they will become once they control these things. 
they will become de facto gods because they will be basically immortal. If you change the spare part of every car every time it fails, it can last forever, right? A human being dies when the first organ fails, correct? Imagine if a car died when the first part failed. How long will it live? Probably two years. So when you change the part, it can carry on. Then you change another part, it can carry on. Eventually, we will be able to regenerate all the failing parts. How long can we live? We don't know. We don't know. If we can regenerate the brain, every time it starts to degenerate, we can regenerate it. All the other body parts, no problem. I'm sure we'll find ways to regenerate the heart, the liver. The brain is the most complex organ that we have, right? The heart is a pump. The lungs, all that is quite simple. All the vessels are pipes. But the brain is super complex. There are stem cells there waiting to regenerate. Signals are telling them to regenerate. As we get all the signals dropped, it doesn't regenerate anymore. So it's not so complex to make brains because there are stem cells there. They're actually playing with signals. And you don't even need to create the signals. You just need to amplify them. Because when they drop, you just make them louder. So if we can regenerate brain with just an amplifier, imagine what will happen. We could live for a thousand years. I think it must be especially exciting because you can see this happening in the companies you're investing firsthand. Indeed, indeed. Right. Indeed. What struck me as well as I was researching is you don't want to hoard it to yourself because I read you have a family constitution where it states that the first sentence, to whom much is given, much is required. And then you've decided to give most of your family fortune away, which is something that's very rare for people to decide on. Could you share a bit about that decision? I think it's rarer in Asia than in the Western world. The tax incentives, the inheritance tax, a lot of other things has led to a more giving culture like Bill Gates, like Warren Buffett, like Mark Zuckerberg. So... I I don't think it's a good idea to just keep it to one's family because, okay, you create a dynasty, but why are you doing that? Because you are creating a dependent family tree, right? They're all then dependent on this to live. And what drives people is hunger. If you already have everything, then you can stay home and do nothing, right? So I've always believed in this mantra that, you know, you give your children enough that they can do something, not so much that they can do nothing. So you keep them a little hungry, make them kind of caretakers of the wealth. And the more money they earn, the more people they can help. The constitution combines both the foundation and the family office so that they can see the fruits of their labor. The more they work, the more successful they are, the more hungry or fed. And that's a direct correlation. See, when I became an agnostic, I became less confident that God will take care of the weak. So I doubt that if I'm not sure whether there's a God or whether the God will, will do that job, who's going to do it? It should be the people who were lucky enough to make it in life. And it's actually all luck because nobody is responsible for the brains they have, right? They didn't create that. It came from their parents. And then if their parents had money, they climbed up the ladder, mainly because of the wealth that they had. Because social mobility is very difficult, right? Right now, the richer you are, the better education you have, the better networks you have, and then the more successful you are. So everything is luck. Nothing is through your own efforts. In fact, there is a strong view that free will is an illusion. I'll give you an example, right? If you go back in time and you change nothing in the history, everything that happened will still happen. Which means that guy didn't have free will, right? Because nothing changed. As long as it keeps happening, that means the circumstances, the experience that he had 
the brain that he comes with, the surrounding environment made him make that decision. And that decision is unchanging. As long as he has those brains, the surrounding didn't change, the inputs came at that point in time, he will still make that decision. So that's Sam Harris's view, which I think is quite compelling. Sam Harris is a philosopher and a neuroscientist. So I think that's quite a compelling view. However, I don't live my life as if I have no free will. <laughs> I live my life as if I have free will. Of course, I, I actively spend a lot of time making my decisions because why does it matter whether I do or not? Even if it's an illusion, I like living this way. I like making decisions in the best way possible. <laughs> so because it doesn't matter, I continue to live it as if I, I do have free will. Whether or not I do, I'm not sure. Even if it's an illusion. I don't know what to say about that. I do, <laughs> I do disagree because I feel that at the end of the day, I do have a decision whether to get angry at someone, for instance, or keep it within. I mean, you could say it was formed by circumstances and my personality, but it's still a decision in me ultimately. But Yeah, I, I fully understand that. But if you roll back in time, as I said, you would have made the same choice. Whatever circumstances made you decide not to be angry or to be angry, those circumstances doesn't change. And so you would have still made that same choice because of who you are and because of what you went through at that point. It doesn't mean you will always make that decision, but on that occasion, you would have made that decision as long as nothing changes around you. And maybe you were angry that day, you were upset or whatever, and every little bit played a part in that decision you made and maybe you got angry. But is that free? Because there are so many things that control that behavior and it would have occurred anyway. But if you change one thing, it can change history because it could have a domino effect and many things change. So again, it, would, it might make you make another decision, which is totally opposite. But again, it wasn't you. It was the circumstances that changed that decision. But anyway, it's a very interesting and deep topic. There are a lot of arguments for and against, but think about it. It's fun. So... You mentioned briefly that upon retirement, you want to spend more time with your foundation. Just want to wrap up with mm. that. What plans do you have with that? I think you want to spend more time in education in Africa? Yeah, I think I want to spend more time in Africa for sure and India. And we just started, we just made a pledge to help fund Charity Water, something I'm very excited about, Fiona too. Charity Water, their dream is to bring clean water to the 600 million people on earth who still has no access to clean water. It's hard to imagine that there are people like that because we just turn the tap and we have clean water, right? But there are 600 of them in the 10% of the world that have no access to free water. So Scott was telling me this story. There was this woman, she travels a few kilometers every day to take water, which isn't so clean from a river. Puts it on her head in a porcelain pot and she would walk that eight kilometers or something to bring the water home for her family to drink. So one day when she came home, she accidentally tripped and she broke the porcelain pot and the family didn't have water that day. The next day, she hung herself. Can you imagine? I mean, like people going through that type of activity and, and that type of stress and the water they get is not very clean anyway and it's full of bacteria and viruses and causes all sorts of diseases and malnutrition and simple diseases that can be so easily cured. So what Charity Water does is they dig a well and then they install pipes and they pump. Simple. When you pump and you get clean water and that's all they do and it doesn't cost very much. Thousands of dollars per pump because they have a small little crane and they have all the equipment and they can do it very quickly. 
So I was very excited that I believe very much in what the team is doing. And Scott is a very visionary leader. So we decided to support this. So that's our first project for 2021. So the reason why you heard me speak about education in Africa is because there are projections that shows that Nigeria will have a billion people in 2100. It's already one of the largest countries in the world, but at the rate they're going, they're going to go like crazy. And Africa is going to be like three, four billion. And Africa is a poor country and their education is very low in Africa today. It's very tough on the world if you have a lot of people who have no money and no education. So I think it's a natural focus for the foundation to try to help that, that calamity that's about to happen. But I began with water because if you have no water, you can't study and you can never be rich. So let's begin with basics first. And that's why we're supporting Charity Water. I think with education, are you starting with preschools as well? Because your wife has a master's in early childhood education, right? And she was traveling around yes, looking at preschools around the world as well. That's right. That's right. She has a master's in childhood education, which is coming in very handy because I have quadruplets, right? Four kids just born. I mean, they're de facto quadruplets. They're not exactly the same because I had the help of surrogates, but they're all about a few months apart. So we have a little school at home already. <laughs> they're about one year old. And so it's coming very handy. But yeah, education and, and early childhood is important because they are like sponges when they're young. So like my kids, we're teaching them four languages. So we have four nannies because we have four babies and our nannies speak their native language to them. So French, native Chinese, Spanish and English from England. It's a bit of an experiment. Let's see what the kids, how much will they absorb? Because language, you can teach them as much as you like, but it must be alive. It must be alive. They must use the language. So we would have to spend uh, time in those countries which speak those languages, like French, like Spanish. I think English is easy. So we plan to spend time in Shanghai, a bit more, Beijing, and then in Latin America, in Spain, and in the French-speaking countries like Morocco, like France, like West Indies. So we will make sure we have enough time in those places. But since my business takes me around the world, it's easy for me to just stop over in those places. And just in LA, Spanish is already useful. And my partner, Khalil, he's French. So we know all his family and we're very close. So that French will already be useful. And Chinese, even in Singapore, you can use it. Fiona speaks Mandarin to the kids. And then, of course, the, the nanny will also speak Mandarin to the kids. I speak English. And then the, the French and Spanish nanny speak just their language to them. And for those who are listening... How can they help you? Well, how can they help me? Well, I have a cause. I'm trying to change the world a little bit at a time, one discovery at a time. So I'll give you an example. Say the vaccine development. In order for the world to eradicate ourselves of this virus completely, when we find a true eradicating vaccine, people mistake them. If they don't, then the vaccine will not work because for it to eradicate, you must have 70-80% of herd immunity reached. So if I had to say something to everyone, is to look at the data and study the facts. And when there is an eradicating vaccine, you will know it. And we should all take it. Otherwise, it won't work. And climate change, we have to make sure that we pressure the politicians to take heed. If they don't, then you have to vote them out because we need to help our planet. We need to rid our planet of plastics because otherwise we're going to be poisoned by it. So there are so many things that we can all do, right, to make the world a better place. For sure. 
It reminds me of when I was invited to attend this UN Youth Forum Climate Change, and they said the youth were very aware of climate change as an issue, but most of them did not think they could do anything about it. There was a clear mm. disconnect between what's happening mm. in themselves. Well, once the biodegradable plastic, or what we call bioluminescent plastic, cutlery and utensils and straws and cups, etc., are out, we should use them and abstain from going to, to companies that are still using polluting plastics. And it will quickly change. And that's how straws got banned from public pressure. So public pressure is super powerful. If we vote with our wallet, we can achieve the results. Even if oil is cheaper than renewable electricity, we shouldn't be using the oil because it's destroying the planet, right? So we must be willing to say, don't dig out every single drop of oil just because it's there. Obviously, if there are no alternatives, we have no choice. But if there is, I think it's worth spending money, time, effort to make the world better, right? Because otherwise, we're going to destroy it. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Vinian, for all of your time. Thank you. Thank you. This has been very enjoyable. So I normally end with these questions. The first one is, do you feel that you have found your why? Uh, it's still work in progress in terms of how, but in terms of why, yes. I mean, what I'm trying to do, because I have so many of these projects, right? If one of them worked, I would have already done something useful in my life. But how to do it is all work in progress because it's what I'm trying to do and it's what I consume myself every day. And I hope to be fairly successful in, in achieving it. Everything I hope to do, I'm sure I'm not going to achieve it. But since the visions are bold, I don't need to achieve all of them. If I achieve a few of them, it's good enough. As long as I can make the world better than when I came, I would have done something good, right? And that's enough. Of course, the more I can do, the better. But even if I made a slight change, it's good enough. If all of us thought like that, then it would have a big impact. And is so, that the legacy you want to leave behind, which is my second question? Well, you said it, right? The constitution begins with to those whom much is given, much is required. It's actually taken from the Bible. And it's a very, very good saying, I think. And the reason is because, as I said, luck plays such a big part. You're born with brains from your parents. You didn't control it. You're born in Singapore instead of Ethiopia. So all this is luck. If we are lucky enough to be given a lot, we should measure ourselves by how much we give back in return to the planet and to our species. We are animal lovers, of course, but the difference between animals and homo sapiens are so wide, right? The cleverest thing that a monkey can do is perhaps steal his friend's banana by saying something that means an eagle coming. Monkeys can lie. No? So many animals can do that. What happened in this experiment was uh, there was an eagle and the monkey said something and they taped the words. And when they play it, all the monkeys look up. Okay, so that shows means that they can communicate, right? And then uh, there was an occasion where one of the monkeys had like some bananas and one of the monkeys said the same thing. He looked up and the guy took his banana. So animals can also lie, but that's about the extent of, of what they can do in terms of communication and intelligence. But humans can go to the moon. Humans can create computers, electric cars, and AI, and the difference is so, so stark. It's incredible. And the funny thing is, our brains have not evolved very much since 70,000 years ago when we first evolved. So how come we can do so much now when we couldn't then? Because 70,000 years ago, all we could do is make stone tools, and today we can go to the moon. And the difference is all about community and communication, the invention of money, agriculture, invention of language, and so many things that make us what we are today. 
So I think that the animals will never come up to our level because so many things had to come to that before. So I'm very protective of the Homo sapiens species in that sense because we are so unique and so many things happen in order to make us what we are today. Anything that we can all do to make this species continue to thrive, we should. And what do you think are the most important qualities a successful person should have? And I would take on to that and say, do you think you're successful? Hmm. Am I as successful as I want to be? No. I'm far from what I want to achieve. So that's why I still have so many dreams. That's why I'm still busy and I'm trying all these things and hoping that they will work. We have a very unique chance with Emergex because the world is truly in a problem and we have the wherewithal to be a hero. Not many people have a chance to be a hero to save the world, right? And we are lucky enough to be placed in this position. And so that's very exciting and very adrenaline rushing. But on your question on what it takes to be successful, I think one is curiosity because you need to constantly learn and you can't do it if you hate it. So you have to love learning. So I think a successful person has to love learning and it needs to be curious as a result. Otherwise, they stop progressing. As a CEO, you need to be able to sell. Besides all the other qualities, the most important is to be able to sell because there's no company that doesn't sell something. So you have to be able to sell. You have to sell to your investors. You have to sell to your customers. You have to sell to your team. You have to constantly sell. And I think the third is to be able to have a vision, to look forward and to be able to articulate that vision. So I think these are some of the key strengths that you need to cultivate if you don't have it in you. But success doesn't mean CEO's success, right? What does it take to be successful? If there is a person with no hands, if he can use his legs to drink water, that's successful, right? So I think success is measured completely different levels everywhere in the world. So success is being better or being at your best, reaching what you think you can do. And you should think far, stretch goals. So in that sense, I'm not successful because I haven't reached my goals yet. But I hope to be. Every day, as my friend David always says, he only has great days and good days. So yeah, I'm optimistic. And where can people go to connect with you, support what you're doing? Well, my website, because the emails are all there. So we're very connectable. We invite companies to send us their business plan. Investors can always contact us. So it's not difficult. And that was the end of episode 30. The show notes and transcript for this episode can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 30. And wow, we did cover quite a lot, didn't we? Everything from how Finian swept all of his academic awards at university by planning his studies like a war, to why he invested in Baidu, and what it was like being on the board, how he became Vickers, and the investment strategy they employ in investing in a wide range of companies, including Selmamet, RWDC, Emergex, and Chooch. Companies that may very well change the world. And if you want to know when the next episode is coming up, as well as learn about other inspiring figures, initiators, experiments, and discoveries I've found along the way, which can't honestly be included in this podcast, then you can also sign up for the weekly steamy newsletter. The link is also in the show notes. So this is my why.com forward slash 30. And stay tuned for next Sunday, where we will meet a very popular or shall we say somewhat notorious street artist whose spray paints and works can be found all over Malaysia 
and the world, including in Mongolia and Kazakhstan. We deep dive into his world, understand why he does what he does, and what it's like living in the grave. See you next Sunday.